Welcome to The Engineering Room, a monthly series of long-form conversations with influential people from the software world. Engineering, the Engineering Room series is sponsored by Equal Experts, and I'd like to thank them for their ongoing support. So if you'd like some help building some great software or are interested in finding a great place to work, please do check their links in the description below. My guest today is a developer, an independent consultant and technical coach. She works with developers to help them to learn and adopt effective agile practices like refactoring and test and development through training and coaching. So she's going to fit in really nicely with the continuous delivery channel, I think. <laughs> Emily helped to popularize ideas like approval testing and did a lot of work to create implementations of the popular Gilded Rose coding and refactoring carter and is a person that introduced me to the use of approval testing frameworks. He's also written two books, The Coding Dojo Handbook and Technical Agile Coaching with the Saman Method. She's an international keynote conference speaker and runs courses teaching all of these skills. Please welcome my guest, Emily Beth. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Dave. It's a pleasure, and, and thank you for agreeing to, 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 to come today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, how would you describe your philosophy, your thinking about software development, what it is and how we, we, we should undertake it? Oh, wow. So that's a big question. Um, so I'm, I've been a software developer. It's, it's actually 25 years now since I graduated and started working in the industry. And I've always kept very close to the code uh, because I, I kind of find that the most interesting part. So that as a philosophy of, of uh, how we should build software, I'm very concerned with what we're doing with the design and the classes and the methods and, and the, the unit tests and all of that stuff right, right there in, in how developers are spending their time day by day, minute by minute. That's the part of software engineering that I'm really interested in. It's, it's interesting in your description, you mentioned uh, design at the start, and I think I would agree I would agree very strongly with that. Is that that seems like the the really interesting part to me, the challenge, I suppose. And I think that's different. You think I, I don't? Would you agree that something that changes with experience, your view of that? Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the design principles that I learned very early on of object oriented design are still the design principles that you know I, I value. Um, we've we've learned more. I've learned more about design. I've learned more about how to write good tests, I think. Um, and I've learned more about how to use tools. That the tools we have now are much better than the tools we had back in the day. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think it. I'm not sure if that's a process of of me maturing or or the just you know things have have changed as well. I I I I guess uh, well I. I... There's certainly part of this that's that, that, that that's true. I, I'm I'm more of a grumpy old man than you, uh, but I um, but I I wonder um, whether uh, that is the advance of of practice or whether that is the matter a matter of experience. I I can't I can't tell honestly personally for some of those things. But it it seems to me that what I see in other people and I remember myself was that earlier on I had a focus on wanting to use the language to its max and know all of the wrinkles of the technologies. And if I'm honest, I'm less interested in that part of the problem now. And and I guess that's where I was going. Do, do, do you recognise yourself in any of those? Not oh. the grumpy old man bit, but apart from that. I think I, I, I met test-driven development very early in my career. Right. I mean, I've been only working for a couple of years and, and I was like, object orientation is fantastic. Um, that was the thing. And then uh, I read Kent Beck's book, Extreme Programming Explained. And the team I was working with at the time, we we decided to adopt XP and uh, started writing unit tests. And I was like, oh, unit tests, this is the best thing. So uh, all of that was, was really introduced to me very early. And I was like... Um, this is this is so much better than what I was doing before. Uh, so for me, it's not been so much of an interest in exploring the boundaries of my language and really nerding out on, on that. It's it's been um, okay. How do I actually persuade the people around me to also 
do object-oriented design and write tests and all this stuff that I, I'm convinced is is the right way to do things. Um, yeah, and 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 and, and that's the, I guess that is the direction that your career has taken. Certainly, in recent years of trying to effect that kind of communication. Right. I mean, I think the 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 big picture view of my career has been entirely uh, having discovered good ways to build software pretty early on. It's how do I spread that? Yeah. And um, and that's a lot of what I've done with the coding dojo is my kind of uh, big thing I was doing about 10, 15 years ago. Uh, wrote, the book came out 2011. And then, uh, you know, that was that was good. It had some flaws. And then technical coaching is what I've been doing about the last five years as a way to spread this kind of ways of working amongst developers. Uh, really and, and 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 so how 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 do you think we do that effectively because that's a hard problem it really is it really is i mean when i first uh, you know read kent beck's book i was like well everyone should read this book and then they should go and just write some tests like we did uh but actually it's not that easy there's a lot of skill that you need and there's so there's it's not most people can't learn a skill like TDD from reading a book. I didn't. I didn't. I mean, I learned it together with others, mm-hmm. and they were very good programmers. And I kind of was learning it in a social context where it was encouraged. So I think there's there's a part of it which is is learning skills, but there's also a part of it which is the culture and context that you're working in. Um, so now the focus of my my technical coaching is how do we um, Get people to gain skills. There are difficult skills that you need to to learn that most software developers never learned in college or wherever. But there's also this social context that you need to set up, a kind of team culture. Uh, So the coaching is also trying to address that part. Because, I mean, my previous attempts really were the coding dojo, which was a lot about skill. Mm. Um, And there was a certain aspect of it, which was... uh, creating a space, a social context, a group of people to learn together with. But uh, now that's much more explicit in what I'm doing. It's um, I'm working with teams um, who who's work to build software together normally. So I, I go into a team that, that know one another and yeah. uh, trying to help them to create that context of, of learning and, and where they encourage one another. And And, and that seems to me a deeply important um, idea and a problem in our industry. I, I, I think, I, I think if I remember rightly, Bob Martin wrote the foreword to one of your books. Yes, one of the one of the things that that always intrigued me from from um, Bob Martin was the idea that the the average tenure of a software developer in our industry is, is under five years, which means that. One of the huge problems that we face that's probably unusual in, in, in many industries is that we don't have, most developers coming into the industry don't have the exposure to more experienced people that you were talking about that help them through their apprenticeship really of learning. And so people like you and I that are trying to find different ways of helping people to um, learn stuff have to, in some ways, try to find ways to cover that gap. Because because the best way of learning, I saw I saw a great video of yours in which you were using some tool to count the votes of an audience through through an app on, you know, um, how they learn TDD. And the commonest way was the way that you described that the best way to learn test driven development is to pair with somebody that already knows how to do it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. There just aren't enough of those people to pair with. Yeah, and so and and so you know, one you want to one you want to take advantage of that, and two you want to facilitate that, and then when you can't do that, you fall back on people like us who try and find ways of helping people over that hump without necessarily being able to pair with everybody over long periods of time to teach them. Right. I mean, that's that's the thing. I know that that approach works for teaching TDD, and I've seen it work. But it's it's uh, 
quite kind of frustrating if you're you're saying, well, I actually I'd like to learn this skill, but I don't know anyone I could pair with. Yes. Um, so, but things are, uh, have kind of changed a bit now since the pandemic. Um, so yes. one really big thing that's happened is is ensemble working or more programming. Um, and that's I mean, that idea maybe has been around a, a while, but but I think what we discovered during the pandemic was that remote working is is an option, mm. and that remote ensemble really does work very well, actually. Yeah, and, and so it's like pair programming only with more people. So uh, and there's also there's come up now that there's even open ensembles that that random people can just sign up and join. They're working on open source software, usually, um, so that there's if you if you haven't got anyone in your team who you can learn DDD from, maybe you could join an open ensemble um, and meet people who are practicing TDD that way and and work with them. So I think that there's new possibilities. Like that's an example. Mm-hmm. And then of course the technical coaching that I do is is uh, it's trying to build on the same ideas that that working with someone who knows TDD is the way to learn it. And I do it yeah. ensemble. I mean, when I'm working with clients, we get the whole team all working together on the, um, in their code, in their production code, yeah. trying to you know, apply these techniques. And, and that seems like a key step, that, that last step of working in, in people's production code. So could you explain a little bit about how you do that? Yeah, so it's... Uh, it's the most uh, wonderful and challenging part of being a technical coach. I mean, when I'm coming in to coach a team, I have to get to know them a bit. And and you never know what the code's going to look like when they show it to you. And you don't know what specific challenges they're going to have uh, for adopting effective technical practices. So it's always that excitement of what am I going to discover? Um, and And then you have to work out quite quickly, what's the most important technical practices they need? Is that test-driven development? Or actually what I'm discovering mostly is they need more effective refactoring skills because they've got a lot of code that is not very well designed and doesn't have very many tests often. So uh, that's that's the challenge I'm I'm facing quite often. So then we uh, we set up a series of, of coaching sessions Mm-hmm. Um, where I, I sit with them and we have ensemble coding in in their code and we try and you know do some refactoring and uh, or we try and write some tests and I I mentor and coach them through it uh, and uh, I I never put my hands on the keyboard changing their code so all of the all of the code is written by the team all of the tests but I'm there to support and, and uh, mentor. And then the measure of my success is when I've gone, can they still do it? Yes. Will they carry on? Um, so that's uh, kind of what I'm doing at the moment with the technical coaching. And of course, part of it is is teaching as well, because often their production code is so difficult that yeah. we need to actually do some practice on something a bit easier. So we do some um, code carter exercises as well. That, that that sounds very similar to to, to to the way that I teach TDD as well in some ways. But I I, I have an amusing, I don't know, a, a depressing war story <laughs> that reinforces your point. I was I was I, I was running a series of TDD classes for a fairly large team, and at the end of each, I'd go and spend a, a day with um, one of the teams and kind of pair with with, with each of the team members for a little while and just in their code bases. We've done some other stuff in their code base as well. And I was sat next to to, to, to this this chap one day and I said, oh, there's a, there's a chance we could we could create a new class there. We could isolate that bit of code and reuse it. And he, his kind of whole body language, he kind of slumped and he, he bowed his head and I said, what's wrong? That, that, that's, isn't that a good thing? He said, no, we've got to create a form and we've got to apply to create a new class. And you're going, what <laughs> so those barriers that you were talking about <laughs> sometimes are, are not not the obvious ones <laughs> i would never i've not come across that before i mean to fill in a form to create a new class that was a new one on me <laughs> yeah goodness no i haven't seen that either <laughs> yeah but no you're right a, lo- a lot of the time it's it's um 
I mean, I, I focus on the team and, and the culture and the skills within the team. But yes, there's often stuff outside the team, which is also preventing improvements. Uh, policies that have come from well-intentioning architects and, and yeah. managers who are trying to help, but they're really not, you know. Yeah, and 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 that's that's one of one of my things, I suppose, in the kind of consultancy that I do these days is often trying. It's often about the way that teams organize and the way that people interact much more than it is about the technology. I, occasionally I'll get my rocks off on somebody calls me in to talk about something technical and I, I have some I have some extra fun then. But a lot of the time it's talking about these, as you said, socio-technical things really. It's it's the way in which we organize ourselves and and the ways in which we communicate, which is what all the data says. It's what it's what you know the accelerate book says and what the and you know the, the google research and all of that stuff yeah and it's it's important and i guess i've mostly just tried to get somebody else to worry about that stuff yeah so i i think if i'm going to be successful i need to have some focus and so i'm, I'm aware that all of those things are important around the team but i i'm trying to for myself just stay focused on software developers in the editor or in their their coding environments, yeah. how can I help them there, and leave it to somebody else, some other coach, some other manager, to try and sort out the rest of the stuff that needs to yeah. be sorted out, and the delivery pipelines and all the other parts of continuous delivery that you you promote. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So, 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 going back to your kind of your your teaching method of, um, I, I think this is what I've got got from it, and also sort of reading some of your stuff and, and 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 looking at it online is so you're going to be doing the kind of the the the, the normal sort of in, in the example of tdd teaching tdd with with coding carters and showing people some of the the principles then letting them do that stuff but then using ensemble programming or or working with people in their own code bases to kind of realize to, to to show the, the this stuff in a real context is that a reasonable description yeah i mean it's it's um it's interlinked uh i i yeah. like it that i i do quite short learning sessions with exercises yeah um for an hour so i call it a learning hour uh then uh, we have a short break and then the next two hours we spend ensemble in their their code yeah and then a couple of days later, I come back and we do it again. So I do these half-day um, sessions with the with the teams. And this is this is what your second book is about, and and what you refer to as the Saman method. Yes. So that's so the Saman method is the name that I made up <laughs> to describe the way I do technical coaching. All names are made up. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought. If I give it a name, then maybe it will be easier to find information. Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah. So that's the, the essence of the Saman method is that you should do both teaching in small small sessions and ensemble in in teams in their code, and uh, to not be there full time. Um, yeah, basically, so that the team has to have time in between the sessions to learn to apply the techniques. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Because it doesn't doesn't really help if that's what I found with the coding dojo. It was so so good fun. People would come and do code carters and be really enthusiastic. And then it just never. A lot of the time, it never seemed to transfer into their production code. Mm -hmm. There was this gap between the the carters that are fun and relatively straightforward, and the production code, which is often, you know, it's just in a different scale. It's completely. Yeah. Uh, much more difficult to know how to write tests when you've got that much code and there are no tests. So, 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 do you think? Uh, I think I know the answer to this already. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm leading you to answer <laughs> to talk more about this, this, the Saman method. But, but this is you use this technique for other things other than just teaching TDD. Yes, and that's. I think because of the kind of companies that I've been working with. Um, so I'm I'm based in, in Gothenburg, Sweden. Um, so I'm not in Silicon Valley. I'm not in London or even Stockholm. It's, there's not a bunch of hip and trendy startups 
bringing me in. It's it's established companies in the automotive, telecoms, life science industry where the the focus of their product is something other than software usually, mm-hmm. and um, they've got a lot of code that's been there a long time. And uh, so when I come in and I'm like, oh yeah, we should do TDD, and they're like, yeah, okay. I look at their code and I'm like, okay, I think we need to focus on uh, refactoring, uh, unit test design, and uh, how to make incremental change so that your code gets better. Mm-hmm. And that's really been the focus of what I've been doing. And and not um, trying to kind of uh, start over and, and throw it out. Yeah. And that's, but, you know, starting from where they are and what's always my focus, what is going to make the situation better? Yeah. for the people what is going to improve the life of these developers and make change easier in yeah. the future so yeah that's where i am really I, I i philosophically i think that we're well aligned on that in, in that i i i've worked with some very good people who were just you know they they were able to say no that's rubbish let's get rid of that and we'll rewrite it and occasionally that um that always makes me nervous <laughs> I'm an incrementalist. I, I I I much prefer to just evolve solutions from wherever we are to to where I want to be. <laughs> you know, but but I, that's the way that I think about it. I think I think of it. You know, I think software development is more like tending a garden than in, in some respects than it is about having some genius inspiration and springing to some wonderful solution in one giant step. So so I you know that, that ability to make you know, as you said. You know, identify the real problem that people have and where they're at, and then try and help them to to move on. So, so what what are what are the kinds of problems problems? So, so, so I think we both live in that world mostly of you know, startups. Startups are unusual and easier <laughs> in, in many respects. Uh, so, so we live in that world of, of working with organisations and developer development teams that are. You know, that have a legacy of, for, for, for want of a better term, of code and practice and so on. So, 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 where do you start? Where do you start addressing that problem? Yeah. So, as I said, I try and keep my focus very much on the developers who I meet and their situation and how I can make small changes that will add up. And I think, um, if I was coming in at a different level uh, as a management consultant, I would have a different answer uh, because I think there's leverage points at all levels in an organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them will have a big effect, actually. Uh, and some sometimes you can be at this, you know, the management level and actually nothing you do has any effect uh, because the problem is in the code. Yeah. So, uh, so for me, the problem, I, I'm working at that level, at the team at the level of the code. And I'm trying to um, help the team to see that it could be better, that uh, there there are tools that they have that they're not using effectively. Often they've got a fantastic refactoring tool um, and they've got a really complex editor that gives them so much information and allows them to do so much analysis and they've got no idea how to use it. Yeah. Um, So I'm, or maybe they've got some idea, but you know, there's, there's some quick wins there just to show them what they've already got on their desktop. They yeah. using effectively. And, and, and sorry, I and then there's the test strategy. I mean, you've yeah. got to get the tests in place and feedback. Uh, yeah. So, 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 I, 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 I guess one route that that may take us is that that takes us into approval testing, perhaps, as as a oh, place yes. to start. Yeah. So approval testing is a, a great technique when your code is not very well structured but you would like to get some tests in place so that you can refactor it. And you've got a video that about introducing approval testing where you show this process. Yeah. And it's a, a good way to get in, get some tests in that are fast enough that you can start getting some confidence to refactor. Yes. So could, could you so could you explain it for people that haven't seen my video? Or... <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. So... You, you try and take um, a piece of code that that kind of hangs together. Um, it, it may not be the usual kind of small unit you do have in a classic unit test, but uh, something that you can isolate without using too many mocks. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, so maybe a function that does a few more things than a standard unit test. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's, and if it's going to produce some form of text, then that's a bonus. Like if it's generating XML or something like that, then it's uh, you you basically try and get it to produce an output that if it's not text, you can convert it to text. Yeah. Uh, so that you write a, a piece of code that's I would call a printer in that case. So if you output uh, this piece of code manipulating the state of a, a small tree of objects, you'd write a printer that would be able to render the, that, the state of those objects as text in a, in a readable way. Or if it's already producing XML, you start with that. You start with the XML. Yeah. And you, um, you uh, record that. Um, and you, so the first time you, when you create the test, you run the, the code, you look at the output and say, well, yeah, as far as I can tell, that looks correct. I'll approve that. And you store it in an approved file. And then the next time you run the test, it will just compare against that stored text. Yeah. And if it matches, the test passes. And if it doesn't match, then if you were refactoring, you may have made a mistake. And yeah. at that point, you can um, go and uh, go back and refactor it again without making a mistake. So for, for the... Um, and that's what you it's a characterization test, characterizing what the thing does. Yeah. Um, the thing that that uh, approval testing does that's more than characterization testing is it allows you because you can you've designed that output in some way so that you can look at it and you've approved it. When you get a failing test where it's not a refactoring mistake, where it's you've added a feature or yeah. you've fixed a bug or, or whatever. You can then look at the diff between what you approved previously and what yeah. you've got now, and you can say, "Well, I like the new one better." They approve that, and easily overwrite the approved file with the new. So that's where the name is from. So it's, uh, it's this because of this explicit step you need to take to read the output and decide to approve it. Yes, and and and, and just to add add to that is is one of the places where I've seen that you widely used that, that that's slightly different to what you were describing is for graphical things. Mm. So 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 Goiko Adzik, for example, has a tool called Appraise that does in, approval testing for graphics. And you can kind of click between the the two. You know, if you like if you like the change, you keep it. And if you don't, you don't. But but that idea of validating the output of the system and allowing you to Pick which what which which one wins, you know. It, when a test fails, I, I, I think I think that's a, a a really useful tool to be able to deal with complex systems. And and I think I, I read somewhere that um, uh, you've used this in some quite complicated software. Yes, yes, I have. Um, so uh, I mean, this technique. Um, my my husband. Uh, is a software developer as well. And he invented this tool for, for doing this um, back in like 2003 and open sourced it text to test. And he's been using it ever since. And I've worked with him in several different uh, organizations on using this approach. So he's done it with uh, airline crew optimization uh, software. That's where it, it grew up. Um, and then he did it with uh, this um it was a healthcare application for hospitals managing blood tests and results of blood tests. And uh, that, it worked really well in that situation. And now he's uh, working in the automotive industry and, and doing it again in a um, great big microservices um, application for managing so, so, trucks. Yeah. So the, so, so, so when, when I first, I, I, I think I first, heard about certainly about the technology i I, I kind of come across the idea of kind of snapshotting the results and comparing them by virtue of doing test room development before i suppose but um but the first time i came across uh, i i I think you were talking about it uh, at a conference that we were both at and your husband was there too and i remember being slightly snippy about it and dismissive because i I missed the point because I was thinking about something else. But I, I think it has an important role. Can you say where you think it's applicable and where it's not? Because because I I, I I don't know I don't know when you agree with me, but I think there's places where it's not the right tool and places where it's exactly the right tool. Yes. So 
I mean, I'm still a fan of, of TDD and unit testing. Uh, and I would still do that for validating the, the small pieces of, of my software. Um, approval testing more comes into its own when, when this piece of code that you're testing is a little larger, uh, when it has more than one outcome that you want to check. Um, I mean, the, the classic unit test response to, well, it's got more than one icon outcome, so write more tests, just mm -hmm. more tests. Each one tests one thing. But with an approval test, actually, it checks lots of things uh, because the, the diff, each line in the diff is like insertion, effectively. So it, you can, it's better when you've got slightly larger pieces. So as part of a test strategy where you've, you've perhaps got unit tests for the, the smallest pieces, you might use approval testing for, for the, those middle layer tests um, where, where you've got bigger chunks and you want to validate together. And then um, even bigger than that, if, I mean, end-to-end -end tests where you've got the whole system mm -hmm. are notoriously slow and flaky and expensive and often done manually. But I've, I've seen very real successes with an approval testing approach in that kind of situation, together with a, a few other practices. Because um, the, the challenge there is to make the tests reliable, fast, and cheap to maintain. Yeah. And I, th I think the approval testing piece helps with the cheap to maintain aspect. Um, so I, if, if uh, so, I've had some success with that, and um, I, I would love to go into more detail. But I fear that I might just go off and start ranting. <laughs> You're welcome to rant, but but so 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 my my. I tend to use approval testing principally um, for for refact to support refactoring in legacy. That that's the the absolute you know wonderful use for me. That, that um, I, I I also like it in this idea of particularly for graphical things because graphical things are always difficult to test. If you got something graphical, just saying. Does it still paint the picture that I want it to paint after I changed it? It's it's quite good at those sorts of things. Um, but but do you think do you think I'm missing something? Am I missing missing something in its use? So 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 I, I'm also a big believer in acceptance tests dr to drive the development process. And as you say, fine grained TDD to to do the you know does the code do what I think the code's doing? Uh, sort of feedback. And, and to drive my design choices. Yes. So, yeah, so approval testing doesn't help you design, drive your design at the lowest level. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't. And and it's that's one of the reasons it's so good for legacy code, because there is, often there isn't any design at the lowest level. It's just yeah. the big ball of mud. And so I think you're right. It, it really is very useful for those situations where there aren't small units and you want to uh, get a larger piece under test so that you can refactor it. That's certainly one of the, the good points for that. But you're, I would also um, look at approval testing for acceptance test-driven development, um, which some people are like, well, you can't because you can't write the test first because you. one of the things with approval testing is that it's always the thing you approve has been generated by your program. Yeah. So you can't have a test that passes until your program is generating some output for you to approve. Um, and then, well, but the thing is, you can still start designing your test before the system exists, just by making a sketch of what you think the output's going to look like. So the the test that you create is um, it's got the arrange and the act designed, but the assert part is going to be replaced by a print diff, uh -huh. um, and you can't have a, a print diff until you've got something to print. But you can make a sketch on a piece of paper or a whiteboard or in a a document it's going to look a bit like this and i'll know it when i see it when um, when would you when would you choose to do that rather than more traditional acceptance testing sort of bdd style scenarios um well because i'm such a fan of the approach if i got the chance <laughs> I would, no that's one of my first go-to but if, okay. the, if people are already being successful with other tools then i would use them Okay, so so you 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 think it's better in those scenarios, and that's where you'd start. That's where I'd start. Okay, 
Okay. In, in, I, I, I would, we could argue about that because because I I would start in another place. So so I I I, I, I I'm not going to be as rude to do that. But but just but just but just one of the things that 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 I I think about. So one of the things that makes me nervous always about tests that are generated from code is that they're kind of self-referential. So so if you are you know it, it, i was i was reading something recently about um uh, one of the ai tools could just generate tests for for you for, for your code and all that does is say yes the code that i wrote is the code that i wrote and that's what i want approval tests for but that's not what i want other tests for so right but no you're still you can still write them beforehand Yes. I mean, uh, when you're designing your tests with with a BDD tool like Cucumber or Specflow, um, you've you've got the given when then. Um, the approval testing is just saying change the way you do the then part. So you you still got to design the given when. You still got to think of the scenarios. You still got to discuss with the the business person how is this supposed to work. Um, and you've got to still got to translate what they say into to something that's executable. It's just that you're not specifying that that assert part in or that then part in any great detail before the application exists. So, so the so the um, the need is expressed in the test, but the result is implicit. Is, is that fair? Um, yeah, the result is sketched. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's sketched in the code, though, right at the start. Um, no, I mean, that's the thing with these kind of tests. Uh, when I'm working with text tests, it, it sits outside of your application. So you're not writing the tests in, in a programming language um, in the same way. It's, uh, so uh, you think of step definitions in, in Specflow or, or BDD. That's the glue that's um, joining your, your feature file to your, your system. Um, so when, you, when you're having that initial discussion, it's the feature file that you're discussing, just like in a, a Approval testing. I would. I'd just be discussing scenarios with uh, uh, what. What are they going to? What inputs they're going to have, mm -hmm. um, and what action are they going to take, or, or series of actions. And and often um, you're building further on a product that exists, so they can say, oh, it's going to look like this in the GUI, and then at this point, I'm going to have a new button there that I'm going to press, and it's this is going to happen. So you 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 write the test that that clicks there. <laughs> does the thing and then says okay yeah there's going to be a new button so you've you've got a thing that executes and then at a point it says can't click the button um yeah. just like you do in bdd and you haven't spent much time specifying what the gui should look like then just kind of said it's it's going to show this result and then yeah. when you actually build the button and, and it shows the new result then you say oh yeah that's what i wanted and you might even show it to the yeah. business okay person, you yeah. know and then and then you get approved yeah that makes sense. Uh, so, so, sorry, that that was <laughs> that sounded dismissive, but that's not what I meant. I was thinking of the next question. Right, sure. No, 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 no. That's that that, that makes it clearer to me. That, that 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 that's that's what I meant. That's what I meant. Um, so, so I understand it better. Um, so, so that uh, one of the questions that I often get asked is is about. I, 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 I guess one of the questions that I, I'm interested in is, is this is big picture stuff again. So, 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 so I'm pulling you away from 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 the from 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 the code focus that we've been talking about, which is absolutely absolutely important. But, 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 but how did you know? How do we get our, our industry to move forwards in terms of to to better educate people and better bring people in? How did you get started, and 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 what kind of gave you your interest and your passion? You talked a little bit about the early day, your early days in computing, and you, you happen to be in a good team that's that picked up extreme programming early. But but what got you started, I suppose, and drawn into the engineering world? Well, I mean, my dad was a physicist and I wanted to be a physicist and an astronomer. Um, so I, I went to university to study natural sciences and physics. And I, after a couple of years of that, I was like, actually, I think maybe I want to work in industry. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I switched to the engineering departments and I, so I have a degree in electrical and information engineering. And at university, I met my husband, Jeff, and he has been writing computer programs since he was like 13 and uh, always knew that he wanted to be a programmer. And of course, he influenced me and he talked so warmly about this. And I, I did a few courses in, in programming. Um, I think I was taught very badly. Uh, and then I managed to come out of university into a, a kind of economic situation where I could get a job in, as a software developer very easily. And I got a lot of advice from Jeff and I worked with some very good people who mentored me. Um, and I think I was very fortunate. Um, I got a very good grounding in software development. Um, so your question was then, well, how do, how do people today get into get a good grounding in software development? And I yeah. listened to your, um, your interview with Ino, mm -hmm. and I, I was really pleased to hear that, that she was doing stuff in universities um, to improve the way it's taught. Yeah. That seems really positive. Um, but I, I think most people get, get hired and thrown into a project team straight from university and they have to learn on the job a lot of things. And um, that's where the technical coaching comes in, because I think that should be something that I would love to see it be more widespread, that it would be normal for teams to take in a technical coach. Um, or for the lead developer in the team to have a more explicit focus on on coaching and, and spreading good practice and knowledge. And that, that there would be some amount of the time budgets allocated for not just team building, but skill building and yeah. bringing the, the newer developers on, mentoring. I, I, yeah, I, I, that, that's that's another of those things that I'm a bit grumpy about. Is it seems to me that often the the, the commercials of software development are just applied in such a naive way that every organisation is looking for cookie cookie cutter plug replacement developers to with exactly the skills that they need with exactly the experience that they've had before. They're not prepared to teach anybody, not to, to grow the people that they have, uh, which seems to me naive and dumb. If, I, if I'm honest, the best organizations that I've worked in focused deeply on growing the skills of the people that they had. And, and because that's the way that you build better organizations. So it seems, it seems rather strange to me that people don't do that. But, but, but I'd agree with you completely on that. So, so you, you've, you, you now work as an independent consultant. So that's another question that I often get asked. So, so, so I guess. What made you make that move and and what do you think it takes to make that kind of move? Oh, um, so I tried being independent before. Um, about 2010, uh, I, I got unexpectedly fired from my job and I thought, well, I'll make a go of this as an independent. And I did that for about two and a half years. Um, and that was when my Coding Dojo book got written and, and came out. And I, I was... Um, and I found that I got really lonely mm -hmm. um, and that selling is is really hard work. Yeah. So uh, at that point, I thought, right, let's just go and get a job. So I found a really nice company with really good people and uh, a lovely role where I could do architecture and test design. It was great. But I found after a while that actually, no, I, I was getting a bit too comfortable. <laughs> um, you know, I was there for about three years and, and it was it was great, but I wanted more challenge and more variety. And that's uh, so I went back to consulting and I joined a consultancy company because I thought I, I don't want to get lonely again. Um, so I've worked now for a couple of different consultancy companies and I've had great colleagues and, you know, done lots of great things. Um, but then uh, this time around, I thought, well, actually, I think I could make another go of being independent. Um, and there were some projects I wanted to pursue that didn't really fit in with the consultancy company that I was working for. So um, I wanted, I, I wrote my book while I was there, but then I, I would like to really take this a step further and see if I could do more than uh, just doing technical coaching, consulting myself. Can I um, find a way to scale this so that 
it's not just me and the teams I can coach. So I've, I've been trying to build up a community. I've got this um, Salman Technical Coaching Society, uh, which my previous consultancy company, Pro Agile, helped me to set up. So uh, I've now, I feel that I can go independent and I've still got not colleagues, but business associates in the, yeah. in the Salman Society, people who I, I trust, who I've, I'd be willing to work with and, and I can bounce ideas off. Yeah. Um, I, so, yeah, I think I think that kind of support network's important, important where, wherever you work. <laughs> right. So I, I I wanted to to give it another go, and I I would like to start a YouTube channel. In fact, by the time this video comes out, I think it might have started and launched. Um, and this was one of the things that I reasons I wanted to go independent so that I could do that. And cool. So I, I look at what you've done, Dave. I think it's fantastic. You are such a strong, independent voice on YouTube with a big audience, and you can speak your mind, and you're not beholden to any um, big company or something, something like that. And I was very attracted by that idea of being able to talk um, my own opinions, you know, and talk and try and encourage technical coaches everywhere and provide some some materials and resources for people who would like to to do technical coaching or, or even just try it a little bit part-time it's kind of the, the idea oh cool well well, well thank you I, I, I'm, I'm pleased and uh, I, I wish you the greatest of luck with the YouTube channel which we, we, we have to talked about before, but, it's a, but it's, it's a great thing to do. And I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, 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 I couldn't go back to working for anybody else again, I don't think, because I, I, enjoy, I enjoy the freedom to be able to express my opinions. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure that I'm wrong sometimes, but that's okay. That's the nature of opinions and the nature of advice. It's, if I'm giving advice away for freely, it's worth what, worth what you paid for it. <laughs> right oh, but it's based in so much experience that yeah, no dave you're you're selling yourself short there <laughs> but, but i i i but I, I i think this kind of closes back to some of the stuff that we were talking talking earlier because, because I, if you would forgive me putting words in your mouth but it's certainly what i think i i have i've had a wonderful career doing something that i've loved uh, and and I'd like to, uh, you know, one of the reasons for me starting my YouTube channel was I just wanted to try and help other people to 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 find better ways of working. What you said right at the beginning of our talk today, you you started off fairly early in your career, landing on some good ways of working, and then got enthused and wanted to to show other people. Me too. You know, I, was, I, I I I came to some of those things a bit later, maybe, but. But um, but but absolutely, and uh, uh, that gets us into you, you, you've used some words that are triggers for me. Um, so so you said that you trained as an engineer and uh, think no, I'm not going to say that. So 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 what? Where do you stand on the engineering versus craftsmanship, craftspersonship, you know, spectrum? What 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 do you think is um, it is that we do? Okay, so I I see myself as an engineer. Um, that's my training, and engineering, as as you I think have said, is is you know it's it's applying science, scientific methods, scientific principles to something very practical, and that has real world results, um, and is useful. So uh, that's that's great. Whereas craftsmanship is is kind of about the individual creator creating something that is used and is useful usually um like a violin or a, a table or something um and they can there can be elements of artwork in that so I, I like to think software is a little bit more hard science than that yeah um, reusable re repeatable transferable and the thing is i think this whole idea of craftsmanship became really popular amongst software developers because because the it's this romanticized image of this craftsman who is so proud of what they've built. It's yeah. this image of quality, expertise, and pride. 
that is so attractive to software developers. We, we have this immense emo, um, innate motivation to build good software, to yeah. do good design that we're proud of. So we would like to have that. And I think that's why this whole craftsmanship became so attractive. But I think it's completely the wrong metaphor for what we actually do. You know? I, 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 I agree with you uh, entirely. The, um, the, I, I, I think that the, the craftsmanship movement was, was, was timely. I, I think it was probably a necessary step but i think it was a step away from something rather than a step towards something really yeah. so it was a, a step away from kind of trying to trying to use the techniques of manufacturing for software and apply them to software and almost attempting to eliminate the creativity which is which is stupid because software is an incredibly creative discipline um but but I think that's what went before through through the I think we suffered from that through the eighties and nineties and the, the craftsmanship movement started to move us away from that which was good but often when I get in conversations about engineering it's really about and it's more of a, a, a debate about manufacturing rather versus software development than engineering versus software development because engineering is deep all of the things that you just said about that people uh, apply to craftsmanship you could just re 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 replace the word craft with engineering and it still makes complete sense to me so 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 it's it's an i i would i would argue as an engineer i, I, I latterly i've come to now once again think of myself as an engineer i didn't always I went. I went through a period when I was at ThoughtWorks of disdaining the idea of of engineering for for a little while, but uh, but but now I don't. But 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 um, I I I I would think that probably the height of human creativity is in engineering. If you're building the Mars rover or the the International Space Space Station or or the Internet, for goodness' sake. Then these are done by engineers. These, these, these are. This is engineering thinking at play, and it's hugely creative and constrained by reality. You can't. So, 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 craft. My, my, my delightful, gorgeous three-year, three-year-old um, granddaughter does craft, but you wouldn't want you wouldn't want to use it or or, or your life to depend on on the fruits of her work. No, that's that's quite right, and um, that's it's in the, the the language as well. I mean, yeah, it's archaic. Craftsman, yeah. it's an arca archaic term. I don't want to be called a craftsman, yeah. um, and I don't want to be called a crafter either because it sounds like I'm meddling <laughs> with like what your three year old granddaughter's doing. <laughs> yeah. That's not what I'm doing. So I don't think it's a it's a very helpful analogy actually. But I, I still like to tap into that feeling of pride and. And yes. See, quality yeah. and pride in what you do—that's that's valuable. But you can have that in engineering. I I I I I I've done this for years. I annoy people around me when I'm working because when I when I have that moment where you go, oh, got it. <laughs> when you have that 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 moment of inspiration when you've got you've got you, you get a new insight into your solution or whatever i'm the person that shouts out and goes, yeah, whatever i'm taking great pleasure joy in in that moment of creativity of inspiration of of, of actually engineering insight that, that we're talking about so I'm absolutely with you that uh we should be taking pride. We should be, we should be taking pride in taking ownership of our work. I think, hundred percent. What what do you what do you think that you bring to it then, from your background in non software engine, you know, proper engineering, <laughs> engineering before you came to software? Oh well, I mean, I my training was in engineering. This was a long time ago, Dave. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's it's uh, always wanting to learn new things and try out new techniques, and and there's always a better way to do things. Um, keep reading, 
that's that's some of the things that I still have with me from that time. I think. Yeah. That um, yeah, just that curiosity and that there must be a better way to do this kind of feeling. Um, I, I, I when I, when I wrote my my engineering book, um, I, I did a, a fair amount of research, as you do when you write a book, um, uh, into the history of software engineering. And uh, I, I just uh, one of my heroes is is Margaret Hamilton, who who, who led the team doing the um, flight control systems for, for for many of the Apollo missions and the lunar lander in particular. Um, but one of the things that she talked about often talks about often uh, in 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 her work then was um building man what she called man rated systems you know people's lives depended on these things they had to work and so her focus and her team's fo she the focus she instilled in the teams that she led was you know thinking in you know i i, th I think of this as part of an engineering mindset of just thinking about all the ways that stuff can go wrong you know <laughs> and 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 just thinking about ways and whoops sorry about that i just pressed my earbud and it started playing something <laughs> but, but 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 thinking in terms of the ways in which things can go wrong and then how you want to cope with them how you want to deal with them how you want to test them how you, you know it's a new case for a test or whatever else I, I remember actually, I saw Margaret Hamilton in person speaking at a conference. Oh, in wow. um, I was so excited to yeah. see her. And I think she told some story about that um, she had a, a small child um, while she was working on this software and she, she brought them in and put them in front of the software. And this small child found a bug in the Apollo <laughs> software. It's <laughs> a crash. Um, as you know, <laughs> the, the, so she she filed this bug, and the um, the leadership said, "Oh, well, that would never happen in real life because the the you know the astronauts are highly trained; they would never do that." <laughs> Pressing <laughs> the buttons, yeah. and and then she said that that of course it did happen. One of the busted <laughs> and pressed yeah. the combination, and she yeah. was like, "You should have listened to me." <laughs> I guess I feel I, I've had the same, almost the same experience. My my then 14 year old went on work experience for a software company where my husband was working so they stuck her in front of the software and had her just you know I, we did supply her with a um a document of naughty strings <laughs> feed into it you know with lots of you know difficult characters and so on but that was you and your husband yeah <laughs> <Speaking> husband. <laughs> some of these strings <laughs> um and she found six bugs in their production system <laughs> cool. which was uh you know serious and critical and they had to fix straight away so yeah yeah anyway, that was a story about <laughs> me and margaret hamilton you know <laughs> just like that yeah uh well what what uh, fantastic stories i'm i'm a i'm a I'm a space addict anyway, but uh, right. but 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 the software engineering thing as well. There's just so many wonderful quotes from her and her team as well about what they were doing. But one one of my other favourite quotes was that you know, they were getting on kind of inventing this really iterative, fast-paced engineering approach to the development of the flight control systems. Meanwhile, NASA was built, busy, busy kind of trying to build this, this this bureaucratic edifice around it all, getting in the way. And all the work was being done underneath them, with them ripping really fast and trying stuff out, putting stuff in that nobody else had thought of, coming up with their, you know, so they, it's Margaret Hamilton's team that saved the Apollo 11 landing by putting in the 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 um the fail fast mechanism to switch off the computer and reboot it with just critical jobs when when the computer became overloaded the the 1202 and 1201 areas as it was oh, sorry i'm nerding out now that's just uh, i i love all of that stuff so. stories one one of the other things that you, one of the phrases that you used when we were talking about talking together today was 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 about architecting for testability could could you just riff on that a little bit because I, because I, I i think that's deeply important and and one of the huge values of the kinds of development that, that you and i talk about yeah i mean it's it's about um feedback you need feedback and yeah. the sooner you can get the feedback the as a developer 
the better because it's cheaper to you know react. Yeah. And so you need the the cheap, fast feedback. Now, unit tests are fantastic for that because they're they're always fast and um, they always give you good feedback. But the thing is, that's not the only kind of feedback you need. You you need bigger scale tests as well. Yeah. And often the feedback cycle on those is is too long to be really useful. So it's important that you have an architecture that will allow you to write effective tests for, the, for larger pieces. Yeah. And um, so that's what I kind of mean, architectural testability. It's got to be a, one of the architectural concerns. It's got to be how quickly can I get feedback? Yeah. How, how I've got to have tests for, for larger pieces than my small units that still run quickly enough and effectively enough for the developer to use them in the development process. So there's a bunch of things that I, I mean, it's not just approval testing there. Um, it's, it's a, so I worked on a microservices system and then you've naturally got a microservice that you can pull out and test, which is a larger piece of code and you can check yeah. that that piece is working. And then of course you need to also check that it, it can talk to the other microservices in the white. So at some point you need some way of, of checking that it can, if, even if you're not running all of the other services on your development box, yeah. you should be able to test that your my service that I'm working on is still talking to the other ones in the right way. Yes. And that that's about building an architecture with it that will allow you to deploy it in such a way that the developer can can see that. Yes. I, I I I would agree I would agree completely and and one of I think this kind of links up to what we were talking about earlier about engineer I I increasingly think of this as a full blown first class engineering practice of if you start using you know, designing for testability it helps you to build better systems not just in terms of of how much you can test them you you end up with better encapsulated systems nicer interfaces as you were describing in your in your uh, between you know between your microservices better contracts between them better isolation better modularity all of this stuff you get not as just a side effect you still need that creativity intelligence and smartness in in, in development developers and development teams but but certainly amplifies our ability to see that and to do that. It seems to me, which is the, the best that you can that you can hope for. It's a tool that we can use to achieve those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm I'm with you on all of that. So that's I worked as a like architect in the architecture team, designing test frameworks um, yeah. and trying to help the developers in in the teams who are building features to to make effective use of this way of, of that they had this tool available to them. They didn't just have unit tests. I was trying to provide them a context, a framework, a, an approach that would let them also test their whole microservice and the, the whole system of microservices while they continue to develop their piece. Yeah. So um, I've, I've been there and that was a really valuable experience. Cool. It's not kind of what I'm doing at the moment, though. I mean, at the moment, I'm really much more at the nitty gritty level. Yeah, but but I I I think I I think that's one of the things that people that aren't used to working in the way that that we are and that we talk about miss very often is that it's not it's not only about the fine grain stuff. It's this this broader philosophy of development of you know, designing for testability, which helps us to get these bigger systems and, and the stuff that you're talking, using the approval tests in the way that you described, using using the acceptance tests and BDD tests to kind of structure the way that we work as well as anything else. I've, I've started thinking lately about what one of the impacts of test-driven development is that we, we're designing in the measurement points as well. So it, it's rather like building a physical device where you want the device to be encapsulated and at some level a black box but you also want to expose the points at which you can measure whatever it is that doing so you can understand whether it's working properly or whatever and so you know i've started to think about it in those sorts of terms is that by driving our changes from test we are designing that those measurement points in our system and that gives us deeper insight without 
without coupling our tests to, to, to the internals, which is often one of the failure modes that I see. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, sometimes people that get a bit shirty about, well, you're just adding that for tests. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we can't have that in a production system. It's a security hole, failure waiting to happen. I'm like, yeah, but you've got to operate this system. You've yeah. got to have some insight into what it's doing while it's operating. And, the, you know, testability is going to give you that. So uh, there definitely has to be a discussion and a balance between the various architectural concerns. But testability has got to be up there. Yes, yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. I think we're coming to the end of our time. I, I, I want to thank you again for agreeing to talk to me today and wish you um every luck with your with your with your youtube channel which should be out about the time that this comes out which is great um and we're all looking forward to that um i want to thank all of the um everybody that's been watching today thank you thank you for watching if you've enjoyed the content hit subscribe and hit like and go over to emily's youtube channel now and watch all her stuff thank you emily thank you dave it's been great talking to you Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.